Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joel Show podcast. Today on the pod, what will it take to end BC's wine war with Alberta? Alberta's red tape minister joins us to offer an olive branch. Plus, the government blinks and says it's withdrawing its controversial Lands Act legislation, which critics called a veto for First Nations. Why did the NDP government blink? And in its throne speech, the government promised to take action against renters from bad faith evictions. What can landlords expect in the weeks ahead? And UBC announces tuition fee hikes for the next academic year. Is a cap on international students leading to program cuts? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Now, yesterday, you may recall uh, the throne speech. Uh, after the throne speech, our housing minister, Ravi Kalon, says that the NDP government will introduce legislation that, in his words, will protect renters from bad faith Eviction. Now, he didn't offer many details, but he did say too many landlords are evicting people under the pretense that they're using the space for, for a family member, but they end up bringing in another tenant at a much higher rent. We'll speak to Landlord BC about the changes that they're expecting. That's at 4 o'clock. Plus, the BC government also says it has now dropped proposed changes to the Land Act. Now, you remember, the province uh, was in the midst of public consultations over changes to the Act, which would have allowed the province to create uh, shared decision-making agreements with First Nations over land use. Now, the proposed changes have sparked significant amount of controversy in recent weeks, including allegations by some in industry and opposition uh, parties that they would have allowed a First Nations veto on land use decisions. Now, the government denies those claims, but it has done a significant U-turn. They are dropping that proposed legislation. Keith Baldy will join us at 4.30 to talk about what transpired today in Victoria. But first, let's talk about one one of our other high-profile Um, BC Industries here. I'm talking about our wine industry. Now, the industry has had some challenges over the past couple of years, from COVID shutdowns to the heat dome, uh, 2022 winter freeze that killed 54% of vine crops, not to mention the challenges of multiple wildfires. There have been significant challenges before it. Last month, Alberta's government, government's uh, liquor wholesaler warned BC wineries it will no longer carry their products in retail stores unless they stop shipping wine directly to consumers. Alberta Gaming, Liquor and Cannabis, which regulates the sale of liquor in the province by controlling wholesale and distribution sent a letter to wineries in BC. It said the agency had been investigating the practice of consumers in Alberta ordering wine directly from BC wineries instead of buying it in Alberta. It was unclear at the time what the reasoning was behind all of this, but now it's over taxation. We want to talk to the folks over in Alberta in regards to whether or not we can resolve uh, these uh, this situation. Joining me on to discuss the issue is uh, Service Alberta and Red Tape Production Minister. Minister Dale Nelly. Minister, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Jazz. Lots to talk about here, and I wanted to sort of set the plate a little bit in regards to what's transpired, but I want to just get to the nuts and bolts first and foremost. This is ultimately about taxation and Alberta's desire to uh, be paid some of that tax in regards to BC wine going directly to consumers in Alberta. Absolutely, and thank you for clearing that up. This is not about access to our markets because we have the open, the most open and free market for alcohol in the country. Um, this is this is about wineries that want to ship into Alberta that are not paying their taxes, and that's just uh, something that is just not tenable. Um, but you know what is the backdrop for all of this, Jazz? Mm-hmm. We have Alberta craft brewers and Alberta craft distillers that can't ship in to BC at all, but we have BC wineries that are shipping tax free. 
that's just not not a scenario that we can uh, that, that that is tenable for for, for Albertans. So let me. I want to get to the craft breweries for in a moment here, but I just want to clarify though. But these wineries that are selling into British Columbia directly to consumers, uh, correct me correct me if I'm wrong here. They're not breaking any laws uh, because at the end of the day, you still have the power to go after specific wineries if they are breaking laws. But an entire industry shipping directly to consumers through online, they're technically not breaking any laws, are they? Well, they, they are, because the system that we have set up in Alberta is, is one that all alcohol goes through AGLC, and then they distribute it to our network of 1,600 private liquor stores. See, the feds had said a number of years ago that they would allow direct-to-consumer shipping if the provinces could accommodate it. And there's a couple provinces that can, many can't, and, and we're, we're one of the ones that, that don't accommodate it. But, but to be clear, though, Jazz, I mean, we, we want to be a good neighbor and we mm-hmm. want to be a good friend. And so we have signaled to the B.C. government that uh, we will put a process in place to accommodate B.C. wineries that will allow them to ship direct to consumer, that will allow us to collect the taxes for it as well. But if we're going to do this, we, we want something in return. Mm-hmm. And, and we need access to B.C. markets because uh, a, a good friendship is, is about uh, good trade relationships as well. And, and they need to work both ways. Have you been given any reason why you can't sell uh, craft beer in, in British Columbia? <laughs> um, I've, been, I've been given a lot of different reasons. And, there, you know, at the, end, at the end of the day, it's unfortunately there's a, there's a, a protectionist mindset that exists. And we have to break that down because good, good friends can't be protectionists, especially when they're neighbors. And, and I'm just going to give you an example, Jazz. Um, one of my staff went to uh, the, the bcliquorstores.com website, mm-hmm. and they identified 349 beers that were available for sale in B.C. So 349 domestic beers, 203 of those were from B.C., 139 were national brands available across the country. But only seven of those 349 uh, beers were, were craft beers made outside of, uh, of B.C., and only one of them was from Alberta. So clearly, there's a disconnect in our trade relationship, and, and we're saying, hey, let's address this. We'll address the uh, direct-to-consumer for you, mm-hmm. but you need to address the, this for us. We need our craft brewers and our craft distillers have access to BC markets. So te- technically, even though there's one, one craft brewery, which is quite amazing, from Alberta that can sell in BC, so you're, uh, you can sell in BC even though it's only one craft brewery. Do you know what they're doing really well that the other craft brewers in your province <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> you, I, I, I don't because we, we don't define success as one out of 349 <laughs> beers. Um, but, but you know what? We'll reach out to them and find out how they got through the tasting boards for sure. Mm-hmm. So you really, you fundamentally believe there is a solution here because, you know, all I have to do is go to Alberta, sorry, to the Okanagan in the summer and see many, many license plates and folks visiting our wineries. And we know you're good neighbors, but uh, there seems to be a win-win here at the end of the day. There is a win-win, and that means there is a deal that is available to us. And we've been, we've been very clear. Um, allow our craft brewers, craft distillers, access to, to your, both your private and your public liquor stores, and, uh, and we'll set up a system in exchange that will address direct-to-consumer shipping uh, for BC wineries. In fact, I've, I've even gone on to say on, to our local media that if BC will allow us access to their markets, 
I will be the first one to sign up for a uh, wine membership from a BC winery. And what if our provincial uh, counter, your provincial counterparts here in BC, you, you've been talking to them. I know you can't always speak publicly on everything, as these are behind-the-scenes discussions. Yeah. But have you been given any indication by them or the industry itself? We've had them on our show in the past many a time. Have they given you any clear indication that they're willing to sit down with you and, and, and to hammer out a deal somewhere along the way? I, I have no doubt they are. I, I believe that the, the, I've spoken to, to the minister, and, uh, and, and I believe that uh, he said to us in good faith that they want to have conversations about an open and free market. Our officials have been talking for about two weeks on this issue, and, and so uh, we're just waiting to hear back now um, from, from the B.C. government. And, and uh, we're, we're cautiously optimistic that they're going to support a, a, a free and open market, and, and we can resolve this for everybody. Uh, and have you have they been given you have they given you any indication in regards to uh, how long that would take? Is this something that can be uh, wrapped up in a couple of weeks? Or is this going to take uh, regulatory changes and many many months here before we get to that point where we can actually see wine going to Alberta and uh, craft beer coming to L- uh, BC? Yeah, I don't I don't have a time frame, but let me let me just say that I am certainly motivated to address this for both the craft. Uh, breweries and distilleries in Alberta, as well as the wine uh, manufacturers, uh, the wine producers in BC. I'm prepared to move quickly on this. We're, n- we're, we're not going to be passing new legislation and writing regulations to accommodate this. We're going to do it quickly. Um, and, and so if there's an appetite from the other side to, to meet us halfway, yeah, we're going to move pretty quick on this issue. Well, make sure uh, when you do come to agreement and hope you do, fingers crossed, and quickly uh, as possible. What I am you know, frustrated by here is we're not talking about trade with China here. We're not talking about trade with the United States or Europe or other Asia. Yeah. We're talking about trade with Alberta. Yeah. Why? And I just want to talk broad. It's a broad question for you. But why do we in Canada have this challenge? Interprovincial trade is tougher than actually sometimes it feels like than, let's say, a trade agreement with a far-off nation in Asia. Yeah, we've, we've had a, a lot of different administrations from many jurisdictions across the country ask that question. And it's, it's unfortunate that we can set up uh, trade agreements with, as you said, Asia and Europe and, and uh, across North America, but, but yet we struggle interprovincially. It's too bad. Our position is clear. We view BC as a as a neighbor, a friend, and a partner, and we want to have an open and free uh, market with uh, with British Columbia, and and then ultimately let consumers decide what beer they want to drink. We think everybody wins from that approach, and uh, and and I hope that's a direction that we can move towards. Well, when we do come to a deal, and I hope we do, uh, I hopefully you can give us a couple of recommendations and our listeners some recommendations for good craft beer from Alberta. Thank you so much, Minister. I would be more than happy to do that. Thanks for your time. You often hear that term, uh, demographics is destiny. Well, today, Stats Canada says there are now more millennials than baby boomers in the country, ending the 65-year reign of the uh, post-Second World War generation. They are now the largest cohort in the population. Joining me now to talk a little bit about what this all means, because it does mean something. It's uh, Mario Canseco, president of the Research Co. Polling Company. Mario, welcome. Hi, Jess. Great to be here with you. Yeah, I mean, we can talk a lot about news of the day and policies of the day, <laughs> but as I said, uh, that old line, demographics is destiny, really you know, points to a lot of things and really tells you where you're headed. In your mind, as, as a pollster, what does this say to you? Well, this definitely changes the way in which campaigns are going to be run in the future. And I think we got a little bit of a look at this change uh, over the past few months, particularly with the discussions about housing 
reaching a national level. Uh, here in British Columbia, we've seen housing climb the charts for the past six, seven years. It started in Metro Vancouver, and then it, it suddenly became something that was affecting everybody. Now we have people in Ontario and in Atlantic Canada looking at housing as the number one issue facing the country, more than the economy and jobs, more than healthcare. And this is being driven more than anything by the younger uh, yeah, Canadians. So it's not a surprise to see millennials overtaking uh, baby boomers when it comes to numbers. And I think uh, judging by what we've seen from the federal government over the past couple of months, what we see from the federal opposition as well, uh, they know that those are the votes that they need to court because now they outnumber the baby boomers. Hmm. And besides housing, uh, are there other adnitudal changes that you think we will see in, in, in the years ahead? Well, there's a couple of things that are quite interesting as well. And that is that uh, millennials are not following very closely in the footsteps of their uh, fathers and mothers. Um, we see people who are taking longer to move in with somebody else. They're taking longer to get married. They're taking longer to have children. That is going to have an effect on the future demographics of the country. Um, we're not at the level that we see in places like South Korea or Japan by any extent. But the numbers are definitely different from what we saw when the generation that was going of age and starting to figure out how to get a job and how to start a family was Generation X. Um, the numbers are definitely lower now when it comes to the way people feel about having children. And that definitely places a, a, a significant change in the way some of these policies will, will be de developed over the next few months uh, and years. You know, when you think about issues such as healthcare for young people, uh, particularly, or education, um, if the numbers continue to go where they're going, uh, you're not going to have as many people going to school, and that is going to change the plans. Uh, the average age in Canada, the median age in Canada is 41.6, which drops slightly by a tenth of a percentage point between July 1st of 2022 and July 1st of 2023. It was the first decline since 1958, which is quite an amazing stat on its own. Uh, this still means, you know, over the long term, as millennials and Gen Z become a greater portion of the of the population, it still means this country will still have to rely on immigration at the end of the day. Well, this is important as well, because, you know, what we've seen particularly in Japan is uh, the way in which the system operated made it very difficult for people to want to settle there. And now they want to change those guidelines because they're noticing that they need more workers because they're not having as many people to uh, fulfill the services that are needed. Um, I think part of the conversation here will change over the next few years. You know, right now there's a lot of animosity. There's a lot of discussions about what to do. You have a housing market that isn't really helping everybody and you're wondering whether the immigration level should be coming down. Uh, it's a natural reaction. It's a visceral reaction in a way, particularly when it comes to the way universities are targeting people who want to come here and study. Um, but ultimately, this isn't something that is going to be solved by people having more children because they're not having more children. You will need immigration to try to fill those gaps in the labor market. I guess you could almost point to the uh, housing legislation. You brought the issue up uh, earlier in our conversation. But when you look at the housing legislation, particularly the legislation brought in uh, last fall, which talked about four to six units on a single family lot, that's a cultural change as well beyond just you know a physical structural change. It speaks to a different type of living. It speaks to a post-World War II single-family home reality that we all lived under. And the reality and how we live moving forward, even physically, changes as well. 
Well, it's definitely something that we can look into, particularly when you're looking at the municipal elections. You know, these are elections where the majority of people who cast ballots are over the age of 55. Uh, your average millennial doesn't really care that much about municipal politics, doesn't understand how councils work or specific things that are going to happen unless they're studying political science. Um, that is going to be an issue, particularly how do you grow and start to pay attention to politics when you are now going to be part of that group that is going to be deciding things. Um, but ultimately, I think part of what we saw in the last municipal election was the parties that were advocating policies where nobody was going to build anything and everything was going to be the same uh, failed miserably. You know, all of these people who were promising us all a better yesterday uh, finished in single digits, particularly in the city of Vancouver. Hmm. Fascinating because it is going to continue to impact our politics and, and, and what we buy, what we consume. Just fascinating uh, to see these the, the demographic shifts uh, in our country. Mario, thank you. My pleasure, Jess. Anytime. You often hear that term, uh, demographics is destiny. Well, today, Stats Canada says there are now more millennials than baby boomers in the country, ending the 65-year reign of the post-Second uh, World War generation. They are now the largest cohort in the population. Joining me now to talk a little bit about what this all means, because it does mean something. It's uh, Mario Canseco, president of the Research Co. Polling Company. Mario, Welcome. Hi, Jess. Great to be here with you. Yeah, I mean, we can talk a lot about news of the day and policies of the day, <laughs> but as I said, uh, that old line, demographics is destiny, really you know, points to a lot of things and really tells you where you're headed. In your mind, as, as a pollster, what does this say to you? Well, this definitely changes the way in which campaigns are going to be run in the future. And I think we got a little bit of a look at this change uh, over the past few months, particularly with the discussions about housing reaching a national level. Uh, here in British Columbia, we've seen housing climb the charts for the past six, seven years. It started in Metro Vancouver, and then it, it suddenly became something that was affecting everybody. Now we have people in Ontario and in Atlantic Canada looking at housing as the number one issue facing the country, more than the economy and jobs, more than healthcare. And this is being driven more than anything by the younger uh, yeah, Canadians. So it's not a surprise to see millennials overtaking uh, baby boomers when it comes to numbers. And I think uh, judging by what we've seen from the federal government over the past couple of months, what we see from the federal opposition as well, uh, they know that those are the votes that they need to court because now they outnumber the baby boomers. Hmm. And besides housing, uh, are there other adnitudal, adnitudal changes that you think we will see in, in, in the years ahead? Well, there's a couple of things that are quite interesting as well. And that is that uh, millennials are not following very closely in the footsteps of their uh, fathers and mothers. Um, we see people who are taking longer to move in with somebody else. They're taking longer to get married. They're taking longer to have children. That is going to have an effect on the future demographics of the country. Um, we're not at the level that we see in places like South Korea or Japan by any extent. But the numbers are definitely different from what we saw when the generation that was going of age and starting to figure out how to get a job and how to start a family was Generation X. Um, the numbers are definitely lower now when it comes to the way people feel about having children. And that definitely places a, a, a significant change 
in the way some of these policies will will be de- developed over the next few months uh, and years. You know, when you think about issues such as healthcare for young people, uh, particularly or education, um, if the numbers continue to go where they're going, uh, you're not going to have as many people going to school, and that is going to change the plans. Uh, the average age in Canada, the median age in Canada, is 41.6, which drops slightly by a tenth of a percentage point between July 1st of 2022 and July 1st of 2023. It was the first decline since 1958, which is quite an amazing stat on its own. Uh, this still means, you know, over the long term, as, as millennials and Gen Z become a greater portion of the of the population, it still means this country will still have to rely on immigration at the end of the day. Well, this is important as well because, you know, what we've seen particularly in Japan is uh, the way in which the system operated made it very difficult for people to want to settle there. And now they want to change those guidelines because they're noticing that they need more workers because they're not having as many people to uh, fulfill the services that are needed. Um, I think part of the conversation here will change over the next few years. You know, right now there's a lot of animosity. There's a lot of discussions about what to do. You have a housing market that isn't really helping everybody. And you're wondering whether the immigration level should be coming down. Uh, It's a natural reaction. It's a visceral reaction in a way, particularly when it comes to the way universities are targeting people who want to come here and study. Um, But ultimately, this isn't something that is going to be solved by people having more children because they're not having more children. You will need immigration to try to fill those gaps in the labor market. I guess you could almost point to the uh, housing legislation. You brought the issue up uh, earlier in our conversation. But when you look at the housing legislation, particularly the legislation brought in uh, last fall, which talked about four to six units on a single family lot, that's a cultural change as well beyond just you know a physical structural change. It speaks to a different type of living. It speaks to a post-World War II single-family home reality that we all lived under. And the reality and how we live moving forward, even physically, changes as well. Well, it's definitely something that we can look into, particularly when you're looking at the municipal elections. You know, these are elections where the majority of people who cast ballots are over the age of 55. Uh, Your average millennial doesn't really care that much about municipal politics, doesn't understand how councils work or specific things that are going to happen unless they're studying political science. Um, That is going to be an issue particularly. How do you grow and start to pay attention to politics when you are now going to be part of that group that is going to be deciding things. Um, But ultimately, I think part of what we saw in the last municipal election was the parties that were advocating policies where nobody was going to build anything and everything was going to be the same uh, failed miserably. You know, all of these people who were promising us all a better yesterday uh, finished in single digits, particularly in the city of Vancouver. And fascinating because it is going to continue to impact our politics and, and, and what we buy, what we consume. Just fascinating uh, to see these the, the demographic shifts uh, in our country. Mario, thank you. My pleasure, Jess. Anytime. Well, the B.C. government said it's dropping proposed changes to the Land Act. Now, the province was in the midst of public consultation over changes to the Act, which would have allowed the province to create a sort of a shared decision-making agreement with First Nations over land use. Now, the proposed changes have sparked controversy in recent weeks uh, because some have said it basically gives First Nations community a veto on land use decisions. Uh, And that, of course, if that was to come to fruition, uh, that's where the the allegations made by opposition uh, MLAs and parties, uh, it would 
would have had a significant impact on our forest industry, uh, LNG, uh, I think mining. So there's a lot of controversy around this issue. Checking in now with our good friend Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, uh, on this issue. Well, Keith, um, the BC government now says it's going to do a U-turn or at very least just slow down and I guess consult some more. Yeah, so out of the blue, not entirely um, unexpected, Nathan Cullen, the Minister of Waterland and Resource Stewardship, uh, called an impromptu scrum news conference here at the legislature and announced that essentially the government's hitting the pause button on the proposed amendments to the Land Act to have further extensive consultation. And I think a more transparent process. I think uh, this is a tacit admission that this had been fumbled in terms of of, uh, uh, transparency and consultation. Even though there had been some consultation, it was sort of done below the radar. And I think that allowed it. In fact, the statement um, Nathan Cullen put out, um, he talked in in his statement saying, some figures have gone to extremes to knowingly mislead the public about what the proposed legislation would do. They have sought to divide communities and spread hurt and distrust. So I think there was a, a feeling that the the narrative had gotten away from the government here and was in the hands of people who were, um, you know, hell bent on ensuring this, this these amendments did not go through and start using arguments that this was going to be uh, a veto for First Nations, creating a lot of tension in some of the local communities, particularly outside of Metro Vancouver uh, on the Sunshine Coast. There is an ongoing controversy about docks and and foreshore land and such. So with an election, everything has to be framed against an election, Jazz, of course. So the Mm -hmm. election's in October. I don't think the government needed this thing festering um, and, and simmering to a boil on the eve of a vote. At a time when the NDP may be historically poised to win ridings in much of the province where traditionally they don't do well because of the split on the right. Uh, this could have undo their electoral success, not in Metro Vancouver so much as uh, in other um, northern and rural and interior communities. Um, we had uh, Nathan Cullen uh, on our show about eight days ago, and I specifically asked him uh, whether or not uh, you know, the BC Land Act granted First Nations veto power. I just want to listen to his comments. Take a listen. I want to ask you this question again. So this piece of legislation this, uh-huh. the, does not give First Nations veto power, as you no. say, a small portion of the population, 5%. This, does, in your mind, does not give First Nations veto power over projects. Happily, not just in my mind, but in law and according to the First Nations Leadership Council, which represents the vast majority of First Nations in BC, have said in a public letter, this proposal does not give First Nations veto power. So I just want to go back to that issue. The minister insisted it did not. First Nations leaders uh, insisted it well, did not. Why, why did we get to this point today then? Well, I don't think his position has changed. I mean, there's no indication that, that Nathan Cullen thinks he's video power. But what I think has changed is that people who oppose the bill have, have the upper hand right now in the, in the debate and discussion about the bill, leaving the impression that it does have, uh, there is a veto. And people who want to believe that will continue to believe that no matter what Nathan Collin has to say. And this highlights, I think, the real sensitivities and difficulty that uh, the government is facing when it comes to reconcile UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, into law, whether it's the Land Act or other laws. There's always been a group or a segment of the population who have always viewed UNDRIP as a veto. For First Nations, that's not changed. What changed? What what happened here was that those voices were able to, I think, get amplified because they had the room all to themselves. 
Uh, and suddenly that became the story, that there was a veto. So Cullum, I think, was kind of late to the game in mm-hmm. trying to argue there is no veto. Uh, and I think, that, as I say, um, this, this whole thing got away from him, which is why they have to go back and essentially start again and start the conversation again and try not to let it get off the rails and have it dominated by those who insist that this is a veto situation. Now, speaking of uh, getting off the rails, uh, BC United is the official opposition uh, party, but they remain third place in polling. NBC Conservatives, with two seats, uh, now are polling uh, in the number two position. Uh, they're both are center-right parties. Uh, there has been some talk of them potentially considering a merger, because though, without a merger, they're going to be splitting that sort of center-right vote. How real is this? Well, you know, the question was put to both um, United Leader Kevin Falcon and Conservative Leader John Rustad. Rustad claims he sent a team of his people to sort of feel out United on the chances of some sort of merger or working relationship, and he was told basically in not these words, get lost, but apply a more familiar expression, which I can't repeat on the radio um, or on television. So that, that to me, that sort of uh, kills any idea here. Again, the election is getting ever closer. You've got egos in the room here, John Rustin and Kevin Falcon and their associates. And I've said this before, who's going to blink first? Someone's, there can only be one leader. Is, Kevin, is John Rustin really realistically expected to give way to Kevin Falcon, the guy who kicked him out of the caucus at a time when John Rustin's party has a significant polling advantage over VC United? And I can't see Kevin Falcon getting out of the way for John Rustin. I mean, he's gone all in. He's got too much to lose. So no, I'd be very surprised... Um, to see any merge. In fact, every day we seem to get news releases from these parties announcing they have either nominated or appointed more candidates under their banner. So what's what's Conservatives United going to do? Tell half their candidates, sorry, you can't run because we're merging. We're going to let the other guys have a candidate. So no, the it's just too unrealistic, too unwieldy, too unworkable. And just not going to happen. And also, one could argue that just because uh, both parties merge doesn't mean the respective uh, supporters that they have will no. all merge into one party no. either, right? No, we've done that. We've seen this movie before in BC politics, and it usually takes a period of years to merge the interests. We saw it with with the Social Credit Party. We saw it with the BC Liberals, which. They came out of nowhere in 91 to replace the old Free free Enterprise Coalition Social Credit Party, but it took them 10 years to rebuild that coalition and and sort of bring in the old B.C. Reform Party after 96, and only then did they win in 2001. And now they split, and it's going to take more than just a few months of, of potential talking uh, to get that coalition back together. Uh, budget day tomorrow, uh, are you expecting anything out of the ordinary? No, I think there's going to, we're looking for some sort of energy rebate scheme. We're looking for a tax on flipping homes. But the, the throne speech and the comments from the finance minister today leads me to believe there's going to be significantly expanded aid programs, financial aid programs. And I'm still taken aback by Premier David Eby's comments last week that now defines people who need help from government as the middle class, and the middle class is defined as having a family income of up to $191,000. That's never been said before, and that's a reflection of the huge housing problem that exists, particularly in Metro Vancouver, the capital, and the Okanagan, where housing, people carrying around $500,000, $600,000 mortgages, it doesn't matter if you have a six-figure income. You're still really living hand-to-mouth, and that's why I think there's going to be some sort of 
new or expanded of existing aid programs or some new ones as well. You know, it is amazing. I think it was a 2017 election campaign where Premier Horgan at that time said $70,000 is what he was viewed as somebody making a high income. Uh, and for the reminder, the NDP of today is not the NDP of the 1990s. Exactly. And again, it's sort of astonishing to hear an NDP premier talk about the need for government to help someone earning almost $200,000 a year. There you go. Keith, thank you. All right. Talk to you tomorrow. Let's talk about uh, BC Hydro. Spent so much time today talking about, of course, yesterday's throne speech and, of course, the budget coming tomorrow. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about uh, probably the most well-known crown corporation in our province. That's BC Hydro. Well, BC Hydro uh, last year, in about October, applied for a 2.3% increase that would be starting this April. I'd add about $2 a month to the average residential bill. And at the time, uh, the energy minister said that it's the sixth year in a row that BC Hydro has applied for an increase below the rate of inflation. Sounds all wedding well and good because at the end of the day, it's a modest rate increase. But there's a lot of things that um, uh, BC Hydro is dealing with. And that, of course, uh, one of them is, of course, completing Site C, many broader challenges around climate change as well, and droughts. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the rate increase and what uh, we can look forward to in regards to some of the challenges uh, that I, uh, BC Hydro has is Richard McCandless. He's a retired senior BC government public servant. Mr. McCandless is also an intervener in BC Utility Commission's reviews of BC Hydro and ICBC rate requests. Richard, thank you for joining us once again. Good to be with you, Jeff. I saw your latest commentary, and I thought it was important that we we, we talk. Uh, this rate request, as I said, from last uh, October, it comes into effect on, on April 1st. You don't necessarily have a problem with it. In regards to your commentary, what you were talking about is what you're seeing looking forward into the medium and long term. Yeah, well, part of it was to highlight the fact that the government has chosen a slightly different approach to uh, influencing the Utilities Commission, if we can put it that way. Um, oftentimes in the past, the previous government and this government have uh, sent um, very specific cabinet directives to the Commission telling them what to do uh, with hydro and ICBC. Um, this time they've, uh, they've chosen to use an approach of uh, putting out their priorities and hoping the Commission... Um, incorporates those into their decisions, and that's what happened with this most recent one, which was um, actually done yesterday in terms of the 2.3% for the upcoming year. Mm -hmm. Um, But in getting more into the weeds, that was mostly due to the way the commission previously was going to handle some surplus money, and it would have led to an actual decrease in rates next year and then a major increase the following year. So to try and smooth that out, um, Hydro asked the commission to to reconsider, and they did. And and so can you give me a sense of what rate increases would look like? You were saying modest increase next year and then a major increase the the year after? Yeah, I'm I'm going by memory here, but it was uh, around uh, 2 to 3% uh, decrease next year. Well, the the reason for this this decrease is that uh, hydro had accumulated a large surplus in its trade profits, trade income. Hmm. Um, and they were commission wanted them to use all that up or most of it next year, give it back to the ratepayers. Mm-hmm. So that would have led to a reduction in rates the following year. They wouldn't have had that money. And then they got site C coming on and some other inflationary costs. So their rates would have had to go up around 12%. So with this huge swing in rates, 
that was deemed to be not appropriate and under the normal rate setting uh, criteria, uh, rate stability rates high in the rate setting criteria. So, so the commission agreed that yes, let's just smooth it out for a few years and use up the surplus over a period of time rather than all at once. Mm-hmm. Which I think is the right way to go. Your thoughts, I mean, I know it's a hard, it's a broad question, but your thoughts on where hydro is and its overall health uh, in your mind for in, in regards to what taxpayers would be concerned about, which is, you know, trying to provide the best and affordable rates for people at the same time, you know, making sure we're building for, for the future. How would, how would you view BC Hydro and its sort of medium-term and long-term uh, challenges? Well, that's that's a loaded question. Uh, <laughs> I didn't just, mean it to be. <laughs> if you ignore things like uh, droughts and things like that, the the rate setting agencies have always said that hydro has um, poor ter- poor metrics because it it's carrying a huge debt, and um, that the government, previous government and this government, didn't seem to care too much um, because they they said, well, the rate payers eventually pay that off. Uh, so they loaded up hydro with a lot of debt, and it's still there. Hydro uh, hasn't made a, a profit in years. Um, and so what happens is they just carry this debt. And for the last number of years, that's been okay because interest rates have been pretty low. But now with interest rates going higher, uh, it's going to cost a lot more to service that debt. And then you add in Site C, um, some of that debt's already been loaded in, but most of it will be loaded in. So so that makes it very difficult for hydro in terms of carrying all this debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, that will eventually be reflected in rates uh, that, that we all have to pay. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you bring in more, <laughs> more short-term things like um, the drought, which is cutting into their production, uh, and then they're having to import power from outside of BC. Um, that's just me compounding the problem with with uh, pressures on their on their books. Hmm. Uh, and in regards to Site C, uh, when are we? When is it going to be completed? Is it still about a year away from completion? I believe it's December is when the first generators start to begin the spin. Um, now that's totally dependent on filling up the reservoir, and uh, they they had hoped to do that to begin that last fall, but they put it off. And um, one hopes they can start doing it by spring, because if they wait till summer, there may not be enough water to fill that reservoir. Hmm. Uh, and in regards to, you were talking about drought conditions, uh, this is just the new normal now for BC Hydro moving forward. This is part of their business plan in regards to, it's hard to gauge what's going to happen every year, but this is just part of the thinking and, and where your head, where ICBC said it's just part of doing business now. Uh, not necessarily. Their their long-term forecasts and everything just generally assume that the, this this drought, which is one of the worst ones they've faced, but they assume it will um, be gone in a couple of years and we'll all be back to kind of normal conditions. So that's how they've done their planning. They haven't incorporated a reduction in in domestic generation long-term in their in their forecast yet. Um, so. Um, it depends on what scenario you want to choose to do your planning, but uh, uh, right now it's long-term drought is not in their forecast. Which I mean, I, I'm trying to wrap my head around that. Why wouldn't it be in your mind? I mean, is this they believe this is part of a weather pattern that someone a couple of years, it, not that it'll go back to normal, but it'll be they'll be at a much better place. 
that's what they're assuming. Um, to assume otherwise is pretty scary uh, in terms of <laughs> the rate payers and, and what it means for, for hydro. I mean, we men- I mentioned this before, all their uh, generation is in one basket. It's hydropower. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's dependent on, uh, heavily dependent on weather. Um, so, especially precipitation and snowpack. And so, the they need to diversify their their sources of energy. And uh, whether wind, solar is not that great in a province like BC, but it may be great in the deserts of California, but not here. And um, so they're left with wind or or something like um, natural gas with carbon capture, or even nuclear, uh, to, to diversify their sources of power. Do you think, and the wind, I, I, I understand, uh, although there's challenges with any, any uh, new technology, but I mean, I'm just trying to, you know, maybe I'm looking backwards rather than forwards, but I, I just... I'm just looking at our province's activism and activist community. Uh, I just don't know how you start up a conversation about nuclear this day and age in an activist province like British Columbia. Well, when the lights start going out, maybe people will ask for something <laughs> beyond well, hydropower. Yeah, that's um, it. That is you know, true. It's, um, you know, it's been operating quite nicely in Ontario for many, many, many years. Mm-hmm. And it provides, I believe, 25, 30%, maybe more of their, of their power. Um, I think it actually might be 50%. Um, and, you know, um, Germany's in a real bad spot right now because they shut down a lot of their nuclear plants. Um, and it wasn't due to safety. It was just uh, because of Fukushima. Yeah, I, I remember. Uh, I remember the conversation around Germany, and then I, I covered the Fukushima issue uh, when the tsunami hit. And yes, yeah. there was concerns, but it was an, it's an older technology. Location was is going to be different. We build them so differently now as well. Yeah. Uh, as well, so there's a. It's a, it's a different France, t- of course, has been working with nuclear for years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, a leader in the field. Well, next month we're going to have an energy series, uh, uh, sort of a two or three week long energy series, and I look forward to have you uh, back join us back at that time. We can talk a little broadly about the province's energy needs uh, on a, on a broad variety and broad uh, uh, sort of uh, way, because there's not just uh, hydro, as you've said. There's wind and solar and nuclear and hydrogen, and so many different things to look at. So look forward to having you on next month, Richard. Thank you so much for your time. Glad to be with you. Thank you. We're joined by show contributor Jerry Mayer Judson, and we're going to talk about uh, not about housing. We're going to talk about the other issue that we spent a lot of time uh, discussing and debating. And that, of course, is wait times and walk-in clinics. Mm-hmm. The healthcare situation. So uh, this company called Medimap, who they broadcast, I think it's seventy percent of walk-in clinics give them their wait time data. Mm-hmm. I've used this service many a time back home in Alberta to really? see kind of yeah to see where I would always go to Medimap first to see which walk-in clinic I should go to, which has a lesser wait time. Really? Yeah. So you basically would just go to their site and they would yes. tell you, oh, really? Yes. So you put wow. where you are, right? So you could kind of shop around a little bit, which is kind of abysmal, but it's a bummer, um, it's a bummer that it, yeah. that you need the service, but it's good that the service exists. So you can kind of do a cost benefit to your time that day. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but they published the wait times at clinics for across the country, at least in the provinces they collect data from mm-hmm. for 20 2023. 
And so let me hit you with some stats. In 2023, the average wait time across Canada to see a doctor in a walk-in clinic was 68 minutes. On average, you are in there for just over an hour before you are seen by a physician. But if you want to know what it was last year, 37 minutes. So that's an Whoa. increase of half an hour. So we're, it's, it's, it looks kind of abysmal this year. And I was, I was, my interest was peaked, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because that's, that's like almost double. And uh, the worst offender, three years running, beautiful British Columbia. So our average wait time is actually 93 minutes. You're waiting there for an hour and a half if you can get into a walk-in clinic to begin with. Uh, and I think that a lot of that would have to do with just 800,000 people with no family doctor. Yeah. You add in, was it? Uh, Adrian Dix is joining us not too long ago. About 300,000 new MSP users just signed up with our provincial healthcare system over the last two years. And then you have an aging population as well in this province. Uh, yeah, it's uh, 93 minutes. Wow. 93 minutes. And actually, that's cool that you, you addressed all of the kind of demand side issues because, mm-hmm. yes, we have more people, aging population, and an influx of folks. But uh, I was curious, right? There has to be also supply side issues as to why this is happening in terms of just amount of doctors and what's going on there. So I talked with Thomas Jankowski. He is the CEO of Medimap, and he had some answers for the sort of supply side question. There's a number of contributing factors here. On the supply side, so when you think about doctors, at the higher end of the demographic curve, so when you think about these aging doctors sort of hitting 60, A, there's a lot of them, but they're also retiring early in some cases because they're really tired of what's been happening in the healthcare system for the past few years. And on the lower end of that curve, you have young residents who typically, after they finish, you know, a decade of healthcare education, they would go into a family practice or a walk-in clinic, except now they're sidestepping that problem because they're seeing how bad it is, how long the hours are, how unimpressive the pay is, and how burnt out all their colleagues are. So they're going somewhere else. And then, of course, in some places, uh, most notably BC, um, you have doctors right now who are almost compensated better for not doing um, walk-in visits anymore. So they're choosing to quite often shut down their walk-in clinics and convert them into medical clinics to take advantage of a different pay model. I was very curious about the British Columbia incentives for general practitioners. So this is actually kind of choking one part of the system to um, supply another part of the system. So it's exacerbating the walk-in problem while it's trying to solve the family doctor problem. Is that correct? 100%, yeah. And what's interesting is I I think it's really well-intentioned and there's no doubt that it will improve the quality of care for a lot of BC residents. The issue I have with that change, though, is that quality of care has never really been a Canadian problem. So improving that faster at a time where it's the quantity of care, if you will, is suffering so much, I think has, you know, a lot of people sort of scratching their heads. In in Ontario, they're performing much better in terms of walk-in clinic wait times. So, like, do you know what Ontario is doing well that British Columbia is not doing well? So the main thing that I think really improved Ontario's results is the fact that Ontario has rolled out an increased scope of practice for its pharmacists all the way back in January of last year. I think I, I glanced at this data in December and I saw that in the first year alone that it was offered, something like 70,000 visits were solved through pharmacists 
which then didn't have to go to walk-ins or ERs, which really helped. NBC is doing something similar right now as well, but they are not as far along as Ontario is. So I think you know we might see some positive effects of that change um, hit your wait times in 2024. With the situation with walk-in clinics in BC being what it is, do you think that this also means that people are foregoing maybe walk-in clinics in favor of going to the ER? Uh, yeah, 100%. Uh, we see this in places where we monitor also ER wait times. Now, it's not something we publish um, or or get at scale, so I won't speak to those exact numbers, but anecdotally, any place where we see walk-ins close doors or get even converted into medical clinics immediately sees an increase in ER wait times. So, you know, we can all draw those parallels very quickly and see what's happening. And it's really unfortunate because when you think about it, you're actually creating a worse problem by doing that because A, you are retraining people in their, I guess, somewhat erroneous thinking that, oh, if there's anything wrong with me, I should just go to ER. Well, no, there are far better choices and you know you could probably have your problem solved for much faster by going somewhere else, but um, this is what it trains people to do. But also at the same time, when you look at the part of healthcare that nobody wants to think about, ER visits are incredibly costly for the system. Like we're talking three to 400 bucks every single time you walk through that revolving door, whereas a visit to a walk-in clinic is about 30 bucks. So, you know, if you're closing a clinic because, you know, and they're, and they're closing doors because they're not compensated enough, but those same people will go somewhere where it costs the system and therefore the government and therefore as the taxpayers 10 times as much for the person with the same symptom to receive care, um, you know, but they have to wait 20 hours as opposed to one or three hours. I mean, this is not going in the right direction at all. None of none of the provinces are doing well. Like, I mean, I mean, we can talk about BC with 93 minutes and everything, but in the end of the day, I don't think anybody's saying, yeah, you know, Newfoundland's doing better or Ontario yeah, is that the only, much better. The only province that I saw that had to decrease was by 11 minutes, and that was Nova Scotia, which is so in Halifax is the city and they there was 46 minutes that you have to wait as if so they they are the only province that uh, was being monitored that technically did better technically but, okay. technically <laughs> but I, I i'm just wondering if they i mean all provinces i guess are growing but i don't know if they're growing like bc is that's, that's the that, thing that's the thing right and uh you know talk about oh we're going to reduce immigration after the next election if mr paul yep gets in he's not going to reduce immigration by that much maybe some international students maybe they'll cut it back a little bit he keeps saying we're going to have more economic immigrants which every opposition leader says when they're running federally sure and 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 that's that's part of it we need to do we need to really focus on who we uh, invite to this country but unless I, we all keep having a bunch of babies which we're not doing happen. like no, the economy no. cannot grow without the influx of immigration that we're seeing oh the numbers are staggering if uh, if we didn't have immigration there'd be who's going to pay for the system like mm-hmm. i said it's 40 cents of every dollar you pay in taxes minimum 40 40 cents to about 41 cents uh, is healthcare and like i said it's it's the ministry that nobody cuts doesn't matter what government it is number one and number two as it continues to grow as someone joked with me the other day it's the ministry that's eating government right it just yeah, keeps growing, growing absolutely but you know that's one thing we all uh, can agree on as canadians uh, is healthcare so there you go jerry thank you thank you
Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.